0: Author Louise Tarkenton once wrote these words, I wish there was some wonderful place called the land of beginning again, where all of our mistakes and all our heartaches and all of our selfish sins could be dropped at the door like a shabby old coat, never to be put on again. I think there's always times, I guess, when we wish we could start over or at least go back and and relive a portion of our lives. There are times in business when we wish we could kind of begin all over again, if we'd only invested in Amazon stock when they first came out with it, or if we had just bought that property, that investment available a decade ago. When I was a teenager in our church youth group, our youth guy, Doug Fraley, would take us from time to time the boy he took the boys and we would go down to minister at the local jail and that was kind of an experience for for me and I'd never seen anything quite like that but what would happen is is they would take us to a section of the jail where the inmates were in kind of a just larger area these are not hardened criminals necessarily but uh we could speak to them through the through the bars and have conversations and and uh And they would encourage us, in a sense, by saying such things to us young teenagers, by how they would never, if they'd only known what they were going to face, they would never, ever have done those crimes to begin with. If they had it all to do over again, they would never repeat them. You know, we've all got moments in our past we'd like to maybe not have to look at anymore. We'd like to erase them. We'd like to have an eraser that would erase the mistakes and the the doofus things we've done and said. Careless words, exorbitant purchases, immoral choices, impulsive actions, broken relationships. If only we could get a do-over. We'd give almost anything if there really was a land of beginning again. Well, as we stand on the threshold of another year, and uh, I tell you, the last couple of years have not been so hot, have they? But I have good news for you. In fact, literally. Because the word gospel means good news. And our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, always has had an offer, but especially as we face a new year, a time of rethinking our priorities and and evaluating our commitments, it's a good time, I think, to take some special focused effort here for the next five Sundays. We want to take you through some of the conversations that Jesus had with various individuals who desperately needed a do-over, how much they wanted one. They just didn't even know all that they needed or wanted. So our text of this morning comes from the Gospel of John. We're going to be spending a lot of time in in John in this series. But Jesus offered a guy named Nicodemus an opportunity to begin life all over again, life anew. Jesus phrased it this way. He said, you need to be born again, a, a spiritual concept. And once we understand it, it can revolutionize our perspective on life. So let's take a look at some things about Nicodemus. I want to look at who he was. I want to look at the uh, offer that Jesus actually made to him. And then we want to look at how he responded today. And hopefully, as soon as we get into this new year, every person in this room, maybe those watching from home today, will have taken advantage of this offer of Christ to begin anew. And it's likely that many of us will be able to identify with Nicodemus as well. There are three words that describe this guy. First, he was a respectable man. Every scriptural detail about this guy's life indicated that he was a man highly respected in the community. The Bible says in John 3 verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now, for us, the word Pharisee brings up images of intolerant, self-righteous guys, you know. But but we overlook the fact that the Pharisees, in many ways, were the most moral, the most respected people in the day, in the time, in their community. A man became a Pharisee by pledging to spend his entire life studying the, the Scriptures, every detail of the Old Testament law. In fact, the word Pharisee means separated one. The Pharisees separated themselves from all the immorality of their day. At least they tried to. But he was more than just a Pharisee. He was also a member of the Jewish ruling council. He was called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was made up, it was like a court of 71 of the most respected and brilliant legal minds in all of Israel. I mean, be similar, I guess, maybe to our Supreme Court or, or maybe the uh, the Senate, perhaps. And one of the duties of the Sanhedrin was to deal with any false prophets, any attacks on Judaism, or and many Pharisees themselves, you know, accused Jesus himself of being a false prophet. So, it's really surprising to see that Nicodemus had come to Jesus at all. It wasn't in his background. It wasn't in his game plan. I'm sure, and much less. To declare in verse 2, rabbi, which was a very respected term, we know you're a teacher who has come from God. He was respectable. And from all other indications, he was also, number two, he was wealthy. He was a wealthy man. After Jesus died in John 19, verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 38 says this, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but he was secret about it because he feared the Jews. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. See, only a, a person of beans could bring that kind of gift to help bury Jesus. One writer said of Nicodemus, here was a man who was at the same time the equivalent of a college professor, judge of the Supreme Court, and a bishop in the church. He was not only respectable, he also was wealthy. And if you succeeded in your career and leadership in your organization or well regarded in your neighborhood, if people might think of you or I as respectable, then we need to be careful because those things are not wrong in and of themselves. I mean, we need Christians to have that kind of influence. But the problem is, is we can become so proud of our achievements. We can become so carried away with our own abilities that we sometimes have a hard time admitting that we have a need for God. Jesus said, unless you humble yourself and become like a little child, it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. One time a while back over at the hospital, I got on a crowded elevator and was going to go up to the third floor. And that was the button that I pushed. We went up and as we got closer to the floor, I, I just was preoccupied or whatever it was. Anyway, the door opened and I walked out the door, but I was on the second floor, not the third. And I could not bring myself to turn around and get back on the elevator and look at all those people. And so I just walked on down the hall to the right as if I knew where I was going until the door of the elevator closed. And then I turned around and went back and pushed the button and went on up to floor number three. Isn't it interesting how we can be self-conscious about the stupidest and dumbest things? Pretending we have it all together when we don't. Pretending that we have our lives in order when maybe we don't. And this, this kind of game can be a real barrier to our relationship to Jesus. Jesus said, unless you repent, unless you admit you are sinful, you all will likewise perish. And it was very difficult for a respectable person like Nicodemus to admit imperfection, but, but he was very humble. But there's even another word, though, that describes Nicodemus. And that was he was a restless man. You know, it's really surprising that he came to Jesus. Jesus was a young man in his early 30s, but Nicodemus was older and more experienced. Nicodemus had money. He was wealthy. Jesus was poor. Nicodemus was a member of the aristocracy. But Jesus had no official title. He didn't run with the same people that Nicodemus did. But he came to Jesus because there was an emptiness in his life. In spite of who he was, he was restless. He was searching for something more than just money and respectability. And in Jesus, Nicodemus, he saw something that intrigued him. Questions were prompted in Nicodemus's mind, in his conversations and in his observations of the Christ child. Jesus had peace. He had joy. There was an assurance about Christ that Nicodemus, he didn't have that deep down inside. And of course, he could not dismiss the miraculous things that Jesus had done, all the miracles. They were spectacular. So so even though most of his colleagues viewed Jesus as a leader of a temporary religious fad, Nicodemus did not. He was an independent thinker. He wanted to discover on his own for himself. And he came to Jesus one night. Now, maybe he came at night to escape the ridicule of his peers. We don't know. Maybe he came at night. Maybe he came just to have a private conversation. And he didn't ask any trick questions. He came up with a very respectable greeting. He said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can perform the miraculous signs that you are doing if God were not with him. And you know what that tells us? It tells us that respectable, wealthy, and restless people, they need Jesus. Yes, the gospel does have the power to convert the obviously needy. But it is a misconception for us to think that there are only those who really need the gospel, should pay attention. Everybody needs the gospel. Everybody needs forgiveness. Everybody needs a Savior. William Temple, an Anglican priest, once dared to make this comment in public. He said, never, ever forget. The church is the only cooperative society in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Now that was bold for a man in his position because, you know, there's not a whole lot of Christians that actually believe that that's true. They think the church is designed just for us. And I wish that others would agree with it more. We think the church is as for our benefit when really once you become a part of the body of Christ, then those that are outside the body of Christ become a very, very powerful motivation for us, or at least it should but anyway, maybe life's going pretty good for you right now. You got through almost to the end of a new year, and in spite of all the headaches and hassles and losses of this past year, maybe your family's together. Maybe you've got it all, all your health. Maybe everybody's feeling pretty good. Your job's secure. But when these kind of things come, be very, very careful. Because if we settle for that alone, or we could reach the point that we long to move beyond success, but we don't know how. You know what's beyond success? It's called significance. It's having a purpose, and there's an important distinction. So what good is respectability or prosperity if our one life on this earth doesn't count for anything? We're just selfish little clods, you know, rolling along on the hillside of life. Jesus asked in Matthew 16, 26, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world? yet forfeits his soul. All the money, power, pleasure of this world will not satisfy the spiritual hunger of the human heart. We've always been searching. We always have been. To fill that God-shaped hole in the very center of our being. Jesus said in Matthew 4, Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Nicodemus didn't exactly know what it was. But there was this restlessness within him. And at this point, Jesus surprised the man with an incredible offer. One that he could not refuse. Verse 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now the Bible doesn't tell us all that happened after that conversation, necessarily. But I want you to listen carefully to what Jesus says in Scripture about that idea, that concept, that reality of being born again. Because it's an offer we just can't refuse. There's five characteristics of this offer. Number one, it's absolutely essential, not optional. Absolutely essential, not optional. He said, if you're not born again, you can't enter into God's kingdom. In other words, heaven is not going to be made up of born-again Christians and then regular Christians. It's not going to happen. He said, if you're not born again, you'll not even see heaven. Someone has said, if you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you'll die once. If you're not born again, you'll not only die physically, you'll experience what the Bible calls the second death, which is separation from God for eternity. However, if you're born again spiritually, while you'll die physically, you'll never experience the second death. You will live forever. That's why Jesus very plainly, bluntly declared in verse 7, you must be born again. It's a non-optional issue. You and I must overcome this sin nature, and we can't do it by ourselves. You do know that the church was never designed to be a luxury hotel for saints. Did y'all know that? You know, we have really good, good refreshments here. Yes, we do we have a wonderful facility. But it's not designed for you and me to come here once a week and just party. It was, never, it was never designed for that. You must be born again. We must always be about the business of by our lives and maybe by our words, hopefully every, the whole of our existence, that we bear witness to Jesus Christ. The new birth is essential. It's not optional. Number two, it's a spiritual birth, not a physical birth. A spiritual birth, not a physical birth. And there's a reason that this is in here, because verse 4 tells us that Nicodemus asked a question. How can a man be born when he's old? Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. I think Nicodemus is saying, he said, Jesus, you're talking about something very radical here. You're talking about something fundamentally different that changes from within. I want that, but it's impossible. How does it work? I'm old. I can't change. Isn't it interesting that there are still people, there are still people today who want to have a a physical rebirth. It's called reincarnation. We talked about this a while back in a sermon series where the spirit leaves your current body, but it comes back in another body. Now I know some of you get up every morning and wish you had a new body. But it doesn't work that way. But the Bible does teach that we can be physically reborn in a sense. In fact, it doesn't teach we could do that. Here's what it says in Hebrews 9:27, very bluntly. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. But Jesus did say we could be reborn. Spiritually, verse 5, he answered them, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Now, some people think the water he's talking about is dealing with physical birth, which we've all experienced, or we wouldn't be here. And spiritual birth comes later when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. There's even been some that think Jesus is referring to baptism where we talk about being lowered into the water and then come up out of the baptistry and the newness of life and all that. Water and spirit stands for the cleansing and strengthening power of Christ which wipes away all of our past and gives us victory in the future. And Jesus went on to tell Nicodemus in the next verse, verse 6, the flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to to spirit. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, listen, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. It's gone. The new has come. It's a spiritual birth, not a physical birth. It's essential. It's not optional. And then number three it's personally experienced, but not easily explained. Personally experienced, but not easily explained. You can see evidence for it, but we cannot fully understand how it came to be. And and this bothers some people because it sounds so mysterious and mystical. And we like everything to be kind of clear and plain. So like Nicodemus, we also have to ponder the question, how is it possible? How is it possible in this new year coming up that we can be given a new life? How does that work? Well, Jesus already used the analogy of human birth. Back in verse 6 and verse 7 and 8, He said, You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. And He says, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And then Jesus uses an an odd reference all the way back in the Old Testament. In verse 14, He compares the reality of beginning again to something that Moses went through and the children of Israel back in the desert. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. See, in the Old Testament book of Numbers, the Israelites were being attacked by poisonous snakes, and and they were dying. And God told Moses to make a a bronze snake and lift it up, hold it up on a pole, and everyone who looked upon that Snake were healed. Now that made no sense. Certainly a defied reason, but it worked because it was ordained by God. Now I don't understand why Jesus being lifted up on a cross necessarily can save us. I don't understand how when we surrender our life to Him, our sins will be forgiven and we can begin. Fr- I don't understand that, but I know that it happens because many of us here today have experienced it. We know that it's true. I have a book in my library written by an ex-convict named Chuck Colson. And Chuck Colson, a great writer and a lot of other neat things in his life, but at one time he was kind of a rascal. Uh, he was kind of a hatchet man for President Nixon back in the day. And he'd gone to to prison for crimes that were committed. And there he encountered Jesus Christ while in prison and when he was eventually released, he formed a ministry and called Prison Fellowship, and he devoted the entire rest of his life to making sure that inmates were introduced to Jesus Christ and set free spiritually like he had been. And of course, there were skeptics everywhere, and they uh, they really came out of the woodwork. When Chuck Colson's ministry was a recipient of the $1 million Templeton Prize for progress. And in a rare moment of honest journalism, which you don't see that much, Time Magazine said this, 20 years, and you can almost hear i being reluctant to say this, but they said 20 years of commitment have worn down most of the skeptics who questioned the sincerity of Colson and his conversion. Chuck Colson explained the transformation that had taken place in two words, they were the title of the book. It was called Born Again. Just what we're talking about here today. Now, we cannot fully explain it, but even the world cannot deny the evidence of it. And then also, the new birth is by faith and not by works. It's by faith, not by works. The most well-known verse in the Bible, is John three sixteen, But we all have bad memory, so let's recite it together. Can we do that? For God so loved the world. Excellent. I didn't even have to turn up my hearing aids. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Notice it's for whoever believes in him. Salvation is not by being good and doing good stuff. He didn't say whoever attends church whenever the doors are open or whoever gives their money or whoever says their prayers every day. No, no, it's given to whoever puts our trust in Him. Recently, a lot of attention has been given to one of our professional basketball players named Stephen Curry. You've know, been watching this guy's career. We've got some ball players like to play ball. This guy is a, is a three-point shooting machine. And he was just recently recognized. Um, let's see what number it was. Here it was. It was 2,974 three-pointers in his career. Wow. And, uh, and he's not done yet. He's going to take it further, I think. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. That was accomplished against the New York Knicks. And he, had, he, uh, he broke the, uh, the all-time record. Wow. Now, the one I was always watching when I was younger was Michael Jordan. And, you know, Michael Jordan once scored 69 points in one game. That's awesome. The game was nearly over and they they pulled him out of the game. and, And another player, a bench warmer, went in to fill his position as the clock began to wind down and the game was about to be over. And the guy was fouled. And the bench warmer went to the free throw line and he put the shot up and made a free throw. And the game was over when the time expired. Several weeks later, the bitch warmer was asked by a reporter, what had so far been the most memorable moment of your career? You know what he said? He said it was the night that Michael Jordan and I scored 70 points. (laughs) You see, it's ridiculous to try to boast of what we have done for God. It's just ridiculous. God has provided our salvation. He is the one who came down to earth. He died on the cross. And we're saved by our relationship with Him and not by our own efforts. It's it's by faith, not by works. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then number five, finally, the new birth is personal. It's not universal. It's personal, not universal. Verse 17 says, "...for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him." And then verse 18 says, "...whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already." because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The offer of salvation is extended to whoever believes and puts their trust in Christ. But if we sneer at God or indifferently reject His offer, then we're already already lost, we're already condemned. Now, Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how Nicodemus responded to all of this, but there are a couple of passages in John's Gospel that indicate eventually he made Jesus Lord of his life. I think he did. John 7.50 tells us that the Jewish authorities were meeting together to decide what to do about permanently silencing Jesus. They were trying to kill him. And the Bible says, And Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, he asked a question. They were in this assembly, and he asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? See, here he's appearing to speak up for Jesus, even if if somewhat timidly, but that's there. And the other place in John's gospel is after the death of Jesus in John 19, verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And he mentions Joseph was, was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And verse 39 says he was accompanied by Nicodemus the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes at about 75 pounds. Now both of these men were trying to see that Jesus received a decent burial. And in doing so, they were demonstrating their devotion to Christ. I I don't think Nicodemus is any longer a secret disciple. I'll tell you what, when Jesus came out of that tomb, I know he wasn't. But you have to wonder Why did he wait so long? I mean, he actually talked to Jesus and watched his life and saw the things that he was doing. Why did he wait so long? God graciously says, whosoever will may come. Whoever believes in Jesus has everlasting life. What what an amazing offer. How can you possibly refuse it? And as we will soon enter a new year, If you haven't already, I hope that you will accept God's incredible offer. In case you missed it, here it is again. Listen carefully. For God, the greatest being, so loved the greatest emotion that He gave greatest virtue, His only begotten Son, greatest gift. That whosoever, that's the greatest invitation, believes in him, the greatest simplicity should not perish, greatest promise, but have the greatest assurance, everlasting life, the greatest reward. Heavenly Father, we are so, so, so blessed. And you are so, so faithful. But we so often are not as sincere and not as serious as we should be about this matter. And so, Lord, as we begin to kind of turn our attention to what will hopefully be a better year than we've experienced this year, been a hard year, I pray, Father, that we will get a jump on this, that we will start at the very beginning of this new year, to reassess our walk with You, our relationship with You. And as we go through this series and see all that You have offered to us, then we will respond appropriately with grateful love and commitment. And Lord, I ask that You would help us as we start this new year to, to start it with a new commitment to move beyond wherever we've been in the past. And move on to the place you want us to be in the future. Help us, Father. We need the help. In Jesus' name. Amen.